Exodus chapter 1. A few weeks ago, as I read through the Psalms, I kind of got hung up on Psalm 145. Let me read you a little passage of that. Psalm 145, we be great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your acts, your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I guess I read that passage every day for a couple of weeks. Perhaps it had something to do with turning 60 about the same time, but uh, there began to grow in me a compulsion to relentlessly tell you, especially you who would be considered the generation behind me, to relentlessly tell you about God's great works, about his glorious splendor, and his abundant goodness. And so I've been trying to decide what to preach on, and that has uh, gripped my soul. And finally, what uh, it's played out to is that we're going to begin to study Exodus together. Uh, Exodus, more than any other book, is at the heart of the Old Testament. Here God's great works are recounted for us in stories familiar to you. And because the Old Testament forms the basis of the New Testament, then Exodus is, is at the heart of what's going on in the New Testament, too. So we can't really understand that unless we understand the God who acted in such mighty ways in this book of Exodus. But having said that, my passion is really not to just go through Exodus verse by verse. My passion is to tell of the great and glorious acts of our God, that you might know him and trust him better. And so I don't intend to deal with everything in this book necessarily. Instead, I intend to go through the history of God's people from the time of Moses until about the time of Joshua. And my prayer will be that, though you may know all these Bible stories from your childhood, that you may see that the subject of the stories is not Moses, and it's not Aaron, and it's not Joshua, but it's the Lord Almighty. He is the one who is acting in history, and he is great and glorious in his splendor, and abundant in his goodness, and worthy of our trust. So let's begin. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I think there are three things that we ought to learn from this uh, passage, this chapter. The first one is this, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Promises often don't seem to mean much anymore. We've gone from a world of our word being our bond, of doing business on a handshake, to a world of contracts with penalties defined for any laxity in the performance, to a world where the only way you can get a contract enforced is by litigation. No wonder promises seem like empty words. But here in the beginning of Exodus, we're reminded that God keeps his promises. His word matters. Verses 1 to 5 pick up where Genesis left off. The sons of Jacob, or Israel, 70 in all, came to Egypt. By the way, just as an aside, other places in the Bible say that there were 75. Don't fret about that. That's not an error. The difference is whether you count Joseph's sons and grandsons, for they too were the sons of Israel, but they were already in Egypt. That would make 75. So what was life like for the sons of Israel in Egypt? Well, in the book of Exodus, we have a whole new phase of history for the Israelites. And the thing that seems to characterize that life in this first chapter is uh, that they had phenomenal growth. We see it in verse 7. In this one verse, there are five different verbs used to describe the growth of this people. The English Standard Version says it quite literally. Let me read that. The people were of Israel were fruitful, number one. They increased greatly, number two. They multiplied, number three. They grew exceedingly strong, number four, so that the land was filled with them, number five. And indeed, they did experience remarkable growth. They began with 70 sons and grandsons here in this chapter. Leon Wood points out that in his Old Testament history that if you double that to include the wives and then generously add in lots of household servants, you could possibly have as many as 2,000 people that migrated to Egypt. But 430 years later at the time of the Exodus, which we'll get to very quickly in this book of Exodus, at the time of the departure from Egypt, there were not 2,000 of them, there were 2 million of them. That's a thousand times as many. Certainly God's creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, was being fulfilled in this family. 
but more importantly, this proliferation of descendants was God's promise to Abraham generations earlier. Back in Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, when the only son he had was Ishmael, the son by his wife's uh, uh, servant girl, when Isaac, the child of promise, had not even been born yet, God said, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. I will make you very fruitful. Now those sound like empty, absurd words to a 99-year-old man. But that's what happened. Decades later, Abraham's grandson Jacob related how God had repeated the same promise to him. He says, God Almighty appeared to me and blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. And now all the Israelites are living in Egypt, keeping their flocks, living there as uh, strangers in a foreign land. God keeps his promise. It may look like they're forgotten people. It may look like that uh, nothing's happening, but God is growing this little band of the sons of Jacob into a mighty people, into a, a great nation, just like he promised. In fact, in this chapel, they are called, in chapter, they are called a people for the first time. And the more corporate label, Israelites, which was used only twice in the whole book of Genesis, will be used 125 times in Exodus. God is keeping his promises to grow the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into a great people, a holy nation that he intends to redeem. And folks, this was only the beginning. God not only grew the sons of Israel into a great people, he delivered them out of Egypt, he brought them into the land of Canaan that he had promised, and God not only blessed Abraham's seed in this way, God eventually raised up the one and only seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, who will redeem his holy people from every tribe and nation and bless the whole world through God's great salvation which has come in Jesus. This morning I declare to you that God is not slack concerning his promises. His plans may seem to have been forgotten. His word may be ignored widely. His people may seem like nothing. But God is still keeping his promises. And he is worthy of our trust. What you know for certain is not what the opinion polls tell you. It's not what the candidates predict that they're going to do. What you know for certain is what God has said, because God does what he said. Oh, but God had also told Abraham that his descendants would suffer in Egypt for nearly 400 years. That had not happened, and now it begins. Which brings us to our second point that we learned from this passage, and that is that God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his people. We tend to think of the word jealousy as a bad word, a sinful, unattractive trait. And certainly it is sometimes. But when the Bible uses this word, and this, this passage doesn't use it, but it certainly is used in lots of other places, it, it, it can have different meanings. The root of the word jealous is the concept of zeal or passion. Now, if we have a zeal or a passion, something that belongs to someone else, that's not good. That's evil. That's envy. That's jealousy in the worst sense. But if we have a zeal or a passion for that which is rightfully ours, that's good. That's loyalty. That's devotion. That's righteous jealousy. And here we see that God 
is righteously jealous for his people. For many generations, the children of Israel had lived peacefully in Egypt. And God had blessed Egypt because of their presence. He blessed Egypt because of Joseph's great actions at the beginning. And then as God continued to bless the Israelites, he, he blessed the Egyptians in, 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 among whom they lived. For centuries, it was a rather happy arrangement as this people grew there in Egypt. But now a new pharaoh comes to power, a new king. One who doesn't know about Joseph's great contributions a, a, a few centuries ago. And didn't take the time to find out. Can you imagine a, a, a leader who's ignorant of the great history of his own land? Can you imagine a president of the United States who doesn't know anything about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington? Well, this new pharaoh just saw these children of Israel, and he saw that they were numerous, and they, they were a threat to him. What was it that concerned Pharaoh? Had they done something wrong? No. It was the very blessing concerning which God had kept his promise. Pharaoh was threatened by the proliferation of these Israelites. Just that there were so many of them. And so Pharaoh decided to take control of this situation. And as he did, he asserted two claims that we read about here in chapter 1. First of all, he claimed the right to the Israelites' service. For centuries they had tended their flocks and minded their business and lived in peace alongside the Egyptians. But now Pharaoh claimed absolute sovereignty over these people. He commanded them to serve him, forced labor to do his bidding, field work for his crops, making bricks for his buildings, and enduring ruthless treatment in the process. What is his goal? He intends by the hard labor and the ruthless treatment to curtail their reproduction, to stop God's blessing of growth in these people. But he didn't stop there. He went even further, for he also laid claim not just to their service, but to their life itself. Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives that all baby boys were to be killed at birth. We read it in verse 15 and 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Pharaoh was determined to curtail the growth of this people. God promised to bless these people and to make them mighty and make them as numerous as the stars of heaven and as numerous as the sand on the seashell. And Pharaoh says, I will stop this growth. I will curtail this multiplication. I will stop them from becoming such a great people. Here's God with his agenda. And here's Pharaoh with his agenda. Pharaoh is claiming absolute authority over the labor and the lives of the Israelites. But folks, God is jealous for his people. Pharaoh has become the instrument of Satan who would crush the seed of the woman as the ancient promise taught. But God is the jealous keeper of his people. Well, this is not just a political or a social issue for Pharaoh. It looks that way at first. The Israelites have become so numerous they might be a threat, though they've done nothing threatening. 
Indeed, their forefather Joseph served Egypt well. But it might look at first that it's a political consideration, but by the end of the chapter, Pharaoh is not just trying to control the growth of his people, he's trying to exterminate them. He's killing off his own labor force. He's killing the people that back in verse 10 he feared might leave Egypt, and that's why he had to control them. But you see, this is how sin is. This is how rebellion against God looks. It's irrational. It's crazy. It's self-destructive. But Pharaoh sets himself against what God is doing. Folks, God is jealous for his people. And it doesn't matter what Pharaoh does. God blesses them more and multiplies them again. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Verse 20, the people increased and became even more numerous. Oh, Pharaoh says we must deal shrewdly with these people. But let me tell you, the God is even more shrewd than Pharaoh or any king in his passion for his people. Folks, this conflict has not gone away. All kinds of leaders dare to claim sovereignty over what God is doing, over God's people. Governments see Christ's church as a threat and decide that they will control and contain it. Sometimes even church leaders think they own the church and can manipulate it as they please. And certainly a host of individuals assume they can trice Christ's church and it means nothing. But I tell you, God is jealous for his people. Oh, you may not even notice his hand at work at first. In this chapter, God is not even mentioned until verse 17. But God's actions and his control are very obvious. No one can stand in the way of his plan to build and to save his people. Pharaoh will lose this confrontation with God. Indeed, before it's over, Pharaoh, who had ordered the extermination of Israel's sons, will feel the pain of God's judgment as Egypt's sons are killed. You cannot stand against God, for he is jealous for his people. Well, finally, there's a third truth here. God calls little people to big faithfulness. God calls little people to big faithfulness. It's wonderful to talk about God's great cosmic plan of the ages, but the truth is we just live our little lives today in our little place. And what does Allah have to do with us? We have no power to make God's plans happen. In fact, it often seems that our actions are rather meaningless in the big scheme of things. Oh, but here we see how God calls little people to big faithfulness. I'm speaking, of course, about the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. Nobody's named their girls Shifra or Puah. I don't know why they We're not told why there were only two midwives for such a huge people. Some people think that there were only two who refused to kill the children. That doesn't really make sense, of course, because then Pharaoh's plan would have been a great success if only two people objected, but it was not a great success. It failed. So more likely, Shifra and Puah were the leaders in charge of the Hebrew midwives. And their resistance then was repeated and nullified the whole program. We don't know. Now these women 
didn't set out to take on the Pharaoh. These women were not trying to make a political statement. They were not leading a demonstration. They simply recognized the obvious. Midwives killing the babies they deliver is wrong. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Midwives killing the babies they deliver is wrong. So they said, we're not going to do it. That's it. And that doesn't mean that they were oblivious to the possible consequences. They probably assumed they would get in big trouble if they were found out. They probably assumed this would cost them their lives. In fact, it cost them their jobs. And in fact, it might cost them their lives. For a pharaoh who was willing to kill children indiscriminately would certainly be willing to kill the midwives who refused to, to obey him. They were smart enough to know they ought to be afraid of what the king might do. But they feared God more than they feared the king. I love the simplicity of verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king told them to do. They let the boys live. That simple. Feared God, had to disobey the king when he stood against God. God called little people to big faithfulness. Now folks, the irony of the whole situation is striking. Here are two little people, two faithful women, standing against the whole public policy of Egypt instituted by the king. Here's the mighty Pharaoh, perhaps the most powerful man in the whole world coming to talk to two Hebrew midwives who hold the success of his plans in check. What irony. Two nobodies against the world. And the greatest irony of all, here we stand 3,000 years later discussing it. And what do we know of the situation? Well, scholars debate all about the timing of all these events and what Pharaoh we're talking about for he's never named here. But Shifra and Puah are names recorded and remembered even now. Those who were nobodies are great, for they were great in God's eyes. And the great king of Pharaoh, Pharaoh the king who was somebody, well, we don't even know his name. <laughs> we don't even know his name. May I suggest God still calls little people to big faithfulness. The problem is we're not told in advance, this is the big one, be ready. Instead, big faithfulness or big compromise just creeps up on us as we're trusting and obeying or failing to trust and compromising our obedience. Folks, God probably didn't call you to do spectacular things, but he has called you to be faithful. And in that faithfulness, true greatness is found. Think of the great heroes of our faith. So many of them are little people. Think of Daniel, the great hero of the Old Testament. Daniel's probably still a teenager when he's hauled off as a captive to a foreign country and he never comes home his whole life. 
but he's faithful there. But anyway, Amos, Amos hasn't been to prophet school. He's a farmer. But God says, here's my word. I want you to tell it. And he tells it. I think of Mary. Mary's a teenage girl planning her wedding. She didn't ask for all this attention. When God calls her, she says, here I am, be it unto me according to your will. I think about Peter and James and John. These are fishermen. They're out working on the beach. And Jesus comes and says, you follow me and use them to turn the world upside down. The list goes on and on through history. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, God, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This morning I'm not calling you to greatness. You may never do anything spectacular. But I am calling you to faithfulness. Faithfulness where you are, with whatever God has put in your hands, among whoever you know. That's what God requires of his people. God calls little people to big faithfulness. And sometimes, through that faithfulness, God changes the course of history. I suspect most every Christian knows Romans 8.28. We know that, all, that God works all things for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Wonderful promise from God. But it's often misunderstood. This promise does not say that God will work everything to make us happy and to guarantee our comfort. No, it says that in everything, good things, bad things, hard things, easy things, God is going to work out his purpose for it, and that's good. I think that's the message of, of Exodus chapter 1. God keeps his promises. He has chosen us for himself. He has promised us eternal life in Jesus. He's not about to forget all about it. So even if we live in the midst of ruthless opposition, we do not lose heart. For God will keep his promises. We trust him. Secondly, God is jealous for his people. He is our God. We are his people. That means we're to serve him and trust him fully. And that means no one else has such a claim on our life. We fear him rather than anyone who would dare to make such a claim that belongs only to God. So don't be afraid in the midst of, the tr of trouble. Fear God, not men. For he is jealous for his people. And then finally, God calls little people to big faithfulness. Most of us will never be well-known, never be famous, but all of us are called to be faithful where we are. And when God works out his great savings plan, saving plans, sometimes, just sometimes, right in the middle of history is some little person living in big faithfulness who makes all the difference in the world. That's how it was in Exodus chapter 1. And that's still how it is today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we've heard this uh, story, some of us, since we were too young to read. And sometimes things that are familiar to us, it's easy to just gloss over and not feel the weight of them. 
But Lord, here are people who had centuries of peace and prosperity suddenly disrupted by oppression and cruelty and threats. That could happen to us, Lord. So may we learn well the things that you teach us here, that you keep your promises, that you're jealous for your people, and that you call us to faithfulness in the midst of whatever we face. Lord, take the seed of your word and plant it in our hearts. May we see your greatness. May we trust you. Do what you say in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.